Welcome to the Project Horse Podcast. We're making advanced horsemanship accessible, sharing down-to-earth training advice and practical exercises with horsemen dedicated to accomplishing their goals. Whether you're hitting the trails for fun, training a project horse at home, or refining maneuvers for reining or cowhorse competition, we'll help you take your horsemanship to the next level. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the Project Horse Podcast. My name is Jake Lundahl. I'm joined today by Amy Kegel, the newest member of our team, horse trainer and clinician. And our sponsor for this episode, yet again, is Drinking Post Waters. We're going to talk more about that later. First, though, I wanted to sit down today and have a conversation with Amy. Now, Amy comes to us as a trainer and clinician from Kidron, Ohio, and we're very excited to have her on our team. She and I have a lot of similar experiences. We were both in the same class during our apprenticeship days in Texas. And ever since she graduated, Amy's been everywhere, not only on the road for lessons and clinics all over the country, um, but she's been training out of several different places, including Stephenville, Fredericksburg, Texas. Uh, you went back to Kidron for a while. You then lived in a town called Matitsi, Wyoming, um, which I still don't know how to spell, by the way working on a ranch out there, not too far actually from Yellowstone National Park, which is pretty cool. And now you're here in Nebraska. So Amy, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So in this episode, I wanted to kind of give you a chance to talk about your background and specifically instances throughout your career as a horseman up to now that have been kind of key moments or maybe horses that were very difficult that, that taught you something, that kind of shifted your perception and thinking as a horseman. Um, so we'll get into some of those points in a minute. But first, I want you to tell people just a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got started into horses, how you ended up deciding to go down the professional route. Yeah, so it all kind of started for me in grade school when we got our first horse. And I mean, we were just backyard horse owners. We, you know, liked the idea, but really weren't very knowledgeable, but it was a start. Um, so that's where my interest started in horses. So after that, it kind of grew, you know, you outgrow one pony. So you get something a little bit bigger and wish with that um, come different behavior problems, I guess we can say, with horses that come in. Um, so because of that, that leads me to start taking some lessons and looking into different clinics and training opportunities and whatnot just to learn more with the with the lack of knowledge that I'm sensing there. So that kind of spiraled through grade school into middle school. And then during high school is where I really started getting serious about it. I started looking into different opportunities to get my hands on more horses. I actually started working at a training barn um, and got to ride a lot of different horses there and be exposed to a lot of different training methods. So from there... That really piqued my interest, and I really wanted to keep going. I was learning a lot and really wanted to develop this skill that was out there. So from there, I worked for another training barn and started teaching at that point. Um, so I was training a lot of horses to sell and for clients, as well as giving lessons. And when you say a wide variety of horses, you mean it. I mean, you grew up in basically Amish country. You're not Amish yourself, but you train a lot of horses to drive and ride. 
which I think is interesting. It's a skill that I don't have is knowing anything about driving horses, which is cool in itself. But I mean, you were training everything from off the track thoroughbreds to the standard breads that pull the the buggies to little ponies that are pulling carts and kids are riding to quarter horses for sale. Like you were basically doing it all. The one barn that I was working at, that was his thing. You know, he would go to the sale and kind of pick up anything and everything for us to ride. We did, like you said, we did a lot of ride and drive horses, a lot of family type horses, a lot of trail horses, things of that nature. So from there, you know, that was kind of in my high school years. So I was serious about it at that point. I wanted to learn more, wanted to keep growing. So I started looking into programs for after I graduate high school, wanted to apprentice somewhere, and that's where I applied to go to Texas. Yeah, you and I were in the same class, and while we were in Texas, we both had an opportunity to not only train a lot of horses, but start really learning what it takes to be a capable teacher of people that can do lessons in clinics and built our experience that way. And so you eventually ended up leaving Texas, then went back to Ohio for a while, and continued taking in horses for training and, and doing lessons. Right. And even before that move back to Ohio, moved from Stephenville to South Texas and was doing a lot of the same thing there. That was kind of my base. And I took in a bunch of training horses there. But at that time, I was still doing clinics and private lessons, you know, really all around the country. Yes. And you also worked in Wyoming for a while, as I mentioned previously on a ranch out there a lot of driving and riding horses as well. It's more of a guest ranch setup that they have out there. It's a beautiful place um, in Matitsi. And then coming here, you're taking yet another step in your career as a horseman, obviously taking in additional horses for training, doing lessons. You have a little bit more opportunity now to be flexible, not only in the program that you're applying and, and still learning and growing that side of things, but in, in the type of people that you're getting in touch with doing lessons with, etc. So that's kind of a, the short history, I guess, in, in your evolution as a professional. But I wanted to go back and highlight a few different points. And you and I were talking before we started recording about a few different instances and, and horses that had taught you some important things. There had been some important moments. And one of them was before, I guess we could call it the mothership era, when you were still in Ohio and um, still working for a couple different training barns, giving lessons and whatnot. And you were also learning and trying to expand your knowledge at the time, probably watching a lot of DVDs. Um, it seems like we all follow a similar trajectory. Uh, DVDs, training demos, any knowledge we can get for free, we're trying to snap up. Um, and you had, you had mentioned a couple different instances to me where you fell into that very common beginner's trap of taking bits and pieces that you see on TV or videos or training demonstrations and taking bits and pieces of a program or exercises out of context and applying it to your horses in a way that <laughs> probably wasn't ideal. Right. Yeah. That brings to mind this one horse that I had. He was actually my first full-sized horse. So before that, you know, I was kind of growing up with ponies and I would, you know, get a little bit bigger horse every time. So this was very early on um, in my training. But I had this one horse and I had seen, I think it might have been a YouTube clip of a trainer side passing their horse on the ground using the fence. So I thought, well, that looks really cool. You know, I, I want to go give that a try. So keep in mind, this is very early on. My horse 
You know, he wasn't really a killer on the ground, but he didn't have a whole lot of ground manners. It was nothing fancy, nothing special. So to make a long story short, this thing had zero preparation and this should have been the last thing on my mind to go and do with this horse. However, it looked cool and you, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So I go out there and I try to side pass this horse on the fence. And of course there's a ton of resistance there and really, I never really get it done because he's, you know, trying to run into the fence or squeeze between me and the fence. You know, it was, it, the horse was completely not set up for it. And was it, this, this exercise was taken way out of context. I remember you mentioned to me another occasion where you went to an actual live demonstration and the trainer there was stressing the importance of doing rollback exercises with, with horses and talking about how valuable they were. Um, so you kind of took that a little bit out of context and went home and started doing rollbacks with your hot, nervous Arab. Right. I had this brainy idea that I needed to get an Arab and he was only a couple hundred bucks. So I'm like, yes, you know, this horse is going to teach me so much. He's going to be such a great learning experience. <clears throat> so anyway, I pick up this Arab and he's hot, he's nervous, he's just kind of wiggy and jumping out of his skin. And he didn't want to pick up his one lead either. I didn't really know how to address that at the time. Um, but I go to this live training demonstration and I mean, shoot, rollbacks seem like, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. They're going to fix all these problems for me. I mean, this is what's going to make this horse ride like a million dollars. You know, he's going to be picking up the right leads. He's going to be loping pretty circles, going to be using his hindquarters and whatnot. So great exercise. However, I executed it very poorly. So this horse was a hot, sensitive, feely horse. And what was I doing? I was pounding on him. I was kicking him out of turns. I was rolling him back. I was trying to get him to pick up the right lead. And this is basically all I did with this horse because I thought it was going to fix it. So I come out day after day after day and keep rolling this horse back and, and whatnot. And it's getting worse. It's getting hotter. It's getting more sensitive. It's getting more jumpy because, again, I took it out of context and I didn't apply apply it to the horse that I was riding. Yeah, doing too much of those exercises with that level of intensity, you'll get a horse that's hot and nervous naturally. They'll become scramblier than a lobster that's being tased. You know, they're just going to be everywhere. And we had both talked about how, you know, there's a couple instances like this that kind of started forming in your mind the importance of having a balanced training regimen, not just taking, you know, because I think that's where a lot of us as beginners, this is why I have empathy for the people that we teach is because I was at a stage too in the past where I would pick up bits and pieces of things and kind of try to make an entire workout for my horse out of like this one singular idea. And sometimes it wasn't even the correct idea for that horse at that level in that specific snapshot of time. And you start kind of developing that sense that you need a much broader program Something else that just came to my mind that you and I had talked about before was one of the first people that you worked for um, that, you know, his main gig was flipping horses, selling them, you know, kids horses and whatnot. He had a lot of horses running through his barn all the time, but you would tell me that he would like go up to the house and he was a decent hand, but he would, he would go up to the house with a new training DVD and he would come down to the barn and it was like, all right, scrap everything that we're doing. It's a new program starting today. Yes, he was very overzealous in that, you know, he'd, 
watch a new training video or get on YouTube. He, he loved YouTube. So he'd get on YouTube and watch, you know, one day it was, you know, old Vaquero style horsemanship. The next day it was dressage. And then the next day it was, oh, we need to be riding everything up in a bridle one-handed. And so the program was constantly changing depending on, you know, what the latest and greatest thing that he had watched up at the house or he'd come down. Oh, he loved um, training devices. So martingales, tying them down, different ropes here and there. And he, he would make all this stuff himself. So he had this white rope that he would finagle like endless contraptions out of. So for a while, I mean, it was a new contraption every week that we were supposed to be using. And the program was always shifting. I went through a similar phase too. In fact, I remember distinctly, I think it was a Monty Roberts book that I had. And there was several little weird contraptions and devices that were, they were actually in drawings toward the back of the book. One of them was this buck stopper device where you would like run a rope through the horse's mouth in a way that would kind of hook over their gums, then back to the horn of the saddle. The idea being, of course, that if they throw their head down to go into a bucking fit, that rope's going to jerk on their sensitive gums and prevent them from doing that. There was all kinds of weird contraptions that I would pick up and play with. And that's something that I've told people before is like, I've met, I've met so many people that are in that green stage of just, they're like a confused duck in the middle of the road. They're, they're constantly circling around. They don't have a lot of direction. They haven't committed to a program. And so they have a lot of like nebulous bits of knowledge, but nothing that's a consistent program you can follow from day one to, you know, day a hundred or whatever. And so while sticking to a cookie cutter formula isn't the be all end all, you have to evolve beyond that eventually. You do have to start your journey with some kind of structure. You have to have some kind of a program to follow. That's uh, when I eventually went to go do that apprenticeship in Texas. That program gave us the structure that we needed, I think. And, and that's where, you know, the lesson learned out of what we just talked about is you need Especially as a learner, you need to learn a balanced training regimen and something that's predictable that has a formula to it that you can stick to and establish like a foundation of knowledge. Then you can build off of that and expand from there, but you need to have some kind of a bedrock. You can't be constantly chasing your own tail, picking up the latest thing off of YouTube. Right. And that's exactly what was happening at this barn. We had to make sale videos of these horses and then he'd post them online and whatnot. So we kind of had everybody in, had in their head what exercise and what this horse needs to be looking like in order to take this video. You know, there were set things we had to have it doing. And so that was kind of always in our mind. So the finished product per se was kind of set, but there were no steps to lead up to that or ever changing steps. You know, it was like a staircase, but two steps were up and then you had three down and it, it was just kind of all over the place. And it was going about it completely backward with the end product in mind, but no clear steps to get there. That's one thing I'll always give, as we refer to it, the mothership credit for is having a full spectrum system, uh, not only in just the actual tactical training steps, but in how to think about horsemanship holistically. Like you have an entire viewpoint from the outset uh, of the end goal in mind, and you have a program that jives with that vision. So I want to talk about uh, one horse in particular that you worked with during the mothership phase 
that was on kind of the opposite end of the scale. Up to now, we've talked about the importance of having some structure, having a baseline, a foundation for your knowledge, having consistency. But one of the things that you learn during that, just like I did, was there's exceptions to the rule. And there's times where, yes, having a formula is nice. And as a learner, there's a, while, there's a time where you have to stick to a consistent pattern. You can't deviate from it. You have to give yourself a level of consistency to be able to master it. But then you need to learn how to bend and twist that and alter it and, and call audibles and modify things to compensate for horses that present a particular problem or are just bad-minded or have all, any number of issues. And there's one in particular, probably one of the more difficult horses that you had in training. The typical program we would follow at the time was six weeks. That horse spent 10 weeks in training to try to get him to where he needed to be based on the owner's expectations, you know. And that was a very good example, a horse like that, of where you have to change up the program to compensate. So kind of give the people listening a little bit of detail of like what this horse would be doing and and what exercises you were trying or or just how things were, I guess, progressing or or not very well progressing up to the point where you started having to change the program a little bit and try different things. Right. So just, I feel like you guys need a visual of what this demon pony kind of is or why we call him the demon pony. He was kind of a pony, kind of a horse, but he came in with this roached mane. So by the time he leaves, he has a zebra mane. He's got this weird scrawny neck, but like with this full-sized horse head on him. So he's just, he's a goofy looking I, booger. I remember that. He had like a pony's body, but a full-sized quarter horse head and neck. Yes. And one of his eyes was blue. So he was just kind of a weird looking thing had a big white blaze he, he was a goofy one so from day one you could just tell that this thing was gonna be squirrely kind of sensitive darty on the you know definitely on the hot and nervous side of the spectrum when I first started training him I don't think I realized the problem child that he was going to be I'm like oh you know just another sensitive horse um, but on top of his sensitiveness, he just wasn't mentally there. So we started the program just like we always did. Um, and I was following that very step by step, but it became very obvious within that first week for sure that he was not the average training horse. The exercises that would normally make an impression on a horse like this they just weren't getting through. So when I started riding him, um, you know, doing the foundation work, one rein stops, yielding his hindquarters, yielding his hindquarter transitions, none of that brought him back to me at all. None of that engaged him mentally. He was literally just a train on a track that was hippity hopping along and nothing I really did got in his way, got him to think about me mentally, got him to write back to me, um, you know, tried some transitions at the lope and oh my goodness, was that terrible. You know, we're talking, you know, three quarters of the arena just to kind of gradually get this thing bent around. Um, it was almost like he was spring loaded. You would go to do a transition and you'd try to be real nice and smooth and methodical and you'd get him bent around and stopped. And like he was spring loaded forward. Like that's how forward this thing was. He could never rate back to you. So, uh, the 
program that I was following just wasn't getting through to him. And that was the point where I was like, okay, you know, you have to know the rules before you can break them. So I was following the rules and it clearly wasn't working or making much, if any, progress with this horse. Clearly, this is an example of a horse that is a little bit what we call bad-minded. And the classic examples, or I guess traits of a bad-minded horse are, yes, a high amount of resistance, but he definitely lacked any kind of retention. You had told me about how, um, and this is actually very interesting because this is a this is a reality for a lot of people with difficult horses. Is that you teach a new exercise? Let's like let's say you introduce um, yield the hindquarters to a stop as a transition exercise. You know, and so for the first three to five days since you introduce that exercise, the new concept kind of has some shock and awe value. And the horse is a little bit back on his heels mentally. He doesn't quite know how to how to square this. And you definitely feel a change in the horse and you think you're making progress. But once he's able to wrap his head around what you're doing and thereby find ways to exploit you and duck, duck pressure, be resistant, etc. He's back to his old ways. So three to five days after you introduce a new exercise, it's like it doesn't even exist. You know, and you you feel no perceptible change overall in how he's riding. And that was very much the story with this horse. Yes, definitely. I mean, his theme song or motto to just him existing is that he was mindless. Like, he would mindlessly just go. Like, just go, 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 go. So, like you said, you introduce a new exercise, like yield to a stop or a different transition. For the first, you know, three, five, if you're lucky, days, he's kind of like, oh, well, this is something new. It kind of gets him to think. And you're like, well, I'm not making a ton of progress, but I'm making progress. So, I'm going to take it. But you push that and, you know, you keep doing the same things and you structure your rides the same way. That newness wears off very easily and he goes back to just being the energizer bunny you know marching to the beat of his own drum just blowing it off and he can then make that exercise mindless like it doesn't cause him to engage his brain anymore he's just checked out mentally yeah and gradually as a trainer you're playing every card up your sleeve that you have right it was like a cycle every three to five days you know you introduce something you know kind of radically new and you're like this is the thing that's going to turn this horse around and it kind of did for a couple days yep and what the really the only hope you have to turn a horse like this around because keep in mind you know in in a professional context where people are paying you money and they expect results you don't have all the time in the world you can extend the program by a few weeks if need be um and, you know but at the end of the day this this person needs this horse to be riding in a safe and controlled manner and it can't be spring loaded underneath of you just just straining mentally waiting for the chance to just ramble and run off into the distance and so you had to find a way to get in this horse's head and give him an incentive to care and start thinking instead of, you know, getting the glassed over look on his eyes and just turning off of his brain. And so the key word for this horse became hyper consistency, literally two to three times a day rides, like first in the morning, ride him over lunch, ride him again in the evening. He's tied up in between then with a hay bag. He's constantly saddled. The bridle never leaves the saddle horn because that way it's right there for you to use. And just hyper consistency. But 
talk about some of the exercises within that that you started doing because you you kind of changed up the program itself. You also introduced because um, we had little um, fifty by fifty foot square pins there where we were training. So instead, you know, it offers a couple different advantages of little what we used to call square pin rides that you can do within that setting as opposed to a round pin. But just talk about some of the things that you started doing that finally were able to turn the tide. Right. The square pen was a really, really valuable tool for him because even something like, you know, a rollback fence or a fence in an arena, it still gives him so much space to ramble. And especially early on, this thing had no handle. Um, and I mean, just legs flailing everywhere. So even something as simple as loping a 50 to, you know, 60 foot circle, this horse was incapable of. So the square pen gave us a controlled environment where he couldn't be just pissing off where I could be getting some basic handle and control on him. So I would start in this square pen and basically just start bending him around a little bit, did a lot of jogging circles on this horse to try to get him to mentally soften, jogging circles, serpentines, figure, figure eights. That was kind of my warm up on him. And then we treated a lot like rollbacks in that square pen, but you can use the corners there for your turns. So rather than having to lope an entire circle before I get to redirect this horse, like traditional, you know, rollbacks on the fence, um, I could redirect him, you know, five to eight times, you know, in half a circle. So I could get in his head times 10, which is exactly what he needed. So I never started with just traditional rollbacks where you just turn into the fence and go the other way. He needed more, um, more getting in his way than even that. So I would do, uh, rollbacks by bending his head and then trotting several circles until he would, would relax then I would lope him out. Um, so doing more rollback transitions. And I would, you know, do that as long as it took for him to just kind of mentally settle as much as he ever did. And then maybe throw in a couple regular rollbacks. But you did absolutely no, no cruising, no loping along the fence, no loping outside in the hay fields or the dirt paths that were on the ranch. And and before we even went to the square pen, I probably spent a week, week and a half, two weeks just at the jog doing exercises like post and circle, both in the arena and outside the arena, just trying to get him to right back to me, you know, trot off just a couple feet, circle, 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 trot off a couple feet, circle, circle, circle. And that was, you know, one tactic that, you know, seemed to have some effect for a while. But the effectiveness of it seemed to wear off after a while. And that's when, you know, we had to lope the thing anyway, because our theory with not loping him was to try to just get this thing so dull and relaxed and kind of tip the spectrum the other way. He'd only let us tip it so far. So at that point, it was, we've got to start loping this thing anyway. So what's the most controlled environment where we can stay in his head the most? Because that that was our tactic with this horse, uh, both with riding it several times a day, with how we rode it. How can we make so that I become this entire horse's world? And how can I make so that he's thinking about me as many hours of the day as possible? Which is why he was the first one ridden. He was ridden, you know, over lunch. And he was ridden as the last horse as well, how can I stay in this horse's brain the entire time? And another thing that we did with him was the hobbling program was really beneficial to him as well. So one thing that we do with 
sometimes with extreme cases like this where they just don't think about you. They're just hard to get through to. They, you know, you're hard to stay on their mind for them is we let them live in the sideline hobbles. So he lived out in a run with a shelter. And again, I wanted to stay on this thing's mind even when I'm not present. They're like, how can I get him to acknowledge human presence in a more effective way? So he would live in the sideline hobbles. And then, you know, I'd catch him, take the hobbles off. And so he was either sideline hobbled or tied up 24-7. Yeah, it breaks down to this. There's three ways to control a horse's mind. Create, redirect, and inhibit movement. You were pulling out all the stops, trying to do all three of them at the same time to get through to this horse. Exactly. If you weren't on his back creating a redirecting movement, he was either tied up with a hay bag or he was hobbled somewhere. Yep. He There's never a moment where he can take a breath and you're not controlling his movement and controlling his existence in some way. Right. I and wanted to stay on his mind all the time. Exactly. And he lived like that for 10 weeks. And with that amount of hyper consistency and hyper focus, we were finally able to make ground with this horse and get him turned around and turn him into a safe and usable horse for that owner. But that is a very good example of structure being nice, but you have to also be able um, to, to be a true a true thinking horseman. You have to be able to modify things. You need to be able to adapt with what the horse is throwing at you. As you said, you need to know the rules so that you can break them when it's effective, when it's the correct thing to do. Yes. And that horse came to me at, you know, really a perfect time in my career because I had gotten really efficient at the program at that point. I knew the steps. I knew how to do it, but I was very structured there. So this was one of the first horses that opened my eyes to when things need to be changed and modified. We all go through that phase. And I've worked with so many people that they've been following a program for a while, but they have gotten kind of complacent. And they'll come across a new horse or maybe encounter a new issue with the horse that they're, that they have that throws them for a loop. And, and it's a, it's a bit of a stretch then to think outside the box and come up with a solution, but you have to do that. Let's talk about after the Texas apprenticeship phase, when you were fully out on your own as a clinician and trainer now, you'd graduated, you were running your own business, you continued to take horses in for training. And after staying in Texas for a while, you then moved to uh, Ohio and took horses in there. And I remember one horse in particular named Riptide that in getting through to that horse and, and turning him around in the training, it kind of highlighted the importance of getting a horse mentally soft. Right. It was the same root problem, just kind of a different flavor. You know, it looked different in this particular horse. So this horse, um, I started as a colt. He was making progress. He knew a lot of exercises per se. Um, I had basic control of his body. I had started moving his shoulders around and, you know, he wasn't an unbroke horse. However, I had him doing a lot of things physically with his body, with his feet, um, all the riding exercises and whatnot, but he still, I still wasn't happy with how he was riding and I was confused for a while as to why this was. Um, because again, he knew the exercises, but he didn't like me picking up on him, um, especially in the beginning of the ride. He would just kind of come out kind of fartsy, wanting to screw around a little bit and just didn't like being handled. Come to find out, you know, as I uh, evolve and keep learning here, 
what really helped that horse was staying in the exercises until he was mentally soft. I was very focused on the body. I was very focused on what his feet were doing, how his body was feeling, and not so much what was going on between his ears, which is where I needed to be focused. And so in that particular horse, what made a big difference was staying in all of these exercises until he was mentally soft and accepting them, not until the picture just looked right and his body was doing what it needed to do. Yeah. And that horse, it presented a challenge that Luke and I have gone over with some of the other horses uh, that we've brought up as examples. One of the earliest ones being that mare Tangle that Luke trained. One of the big challenges was with her was that she was just kind of angsty and pissy about being handled in the first place. So in trying to get something through to her in a training scenario, the very fact that you're even up there putting pressure on her, she's focusing on that and being resistant and angsty and flustered and nervous about it instead of just focusing on the exercise itself. And she had kind of gotten a habit of sort of flailing around and going through the motions while mentally flipping the rider the bird the whole time. Like that, that thing was always up there flying. And we had to do a lot of things like, for example, we had to be creative. We had to do like creative transitions exercises around the arena, especially because at that time we had a very small indoor with a little bit of limited space. So we had to invent different rollback transitions like, you know, take her across the arena, down the fence, roll her back into the fence, uh, roll her back into bending at the walk, um, roll her back into a turnaround, like different ways to kind of casually yet consistently get in her road, redirect her feet, pick up on her, corral her, uh, you know, put her in a little bit of a bind and, and stay in it, of course, until we felt her actually relax. Different ways to make these horses accept us handling them and training them. Absolutely. And, and that's what was effective for, for Riptide. I remember this was one of the first Obviously, you being in my class uh, during our apprenticeship phase, you know, you and I had stayed in touch pretty consistently. But this was one of the times where you reached out to both Luke and I significantly for help with this horse. And mm -hmm. we started having quite a, a productive dialogue back and forth on different exercises we can do. Um, prior to that, you'd kind of been introduced through other people, especially that had some performance horse experience of the importance of incorporating a turnaround into your training program, even with non-show horses, mm -hmm. and how not only do you need a higher level of shoulder control than you were previously settling for, but how effective it can be, again, as a transition or just as a, tr as a tool that you have in your training. Because um, it, it's, with this horse, I remember specifically putting him in any kind of a bind like that, whether bending him around laterally or turning him around or as we call it, turning around on the foot with his head bent around to your toe. Um, you know, any kind of turn or softening within that, he would just tend to get very nervous about. And constantly taking him in and out of that bind would help him relax and slow down. Obviously, for the first couple of weeks, though, you had to, like, grit your teeth and try to be as methodical as you could, not let him get you flustered. I think we've all had that experience where we're riding a horse that's just 
they're just making it hard to like them at that particular moment. And for a couple of weeks, you've got to like grit your teeth, try to be methodical. You know, they're going to ramble this way. You're kind of corralling their face, bending them around or turning them around softly. They're, you know, you take them into it, or let's say you slide your hand down, put your leg back and go to yield their hindquarters. They're scrambling around when you initially pick up and you got to wait on them there until they soften. And then they'll try to, they'll, they'll teeter totter back and forth between getting sticky feet and stopping. Then you up the pressure and they kind of break free and scramble, scramble, scramble. And it like, it takes a while. It takes a lot of repetition for them to not only physically smooth out and be confident, but mentally soften and be accepting of being picked up on like that. And just, it's like you're having to teach the horse to be trained on so that you can get anything done. Yes. And that turning on the foot exercise was a very pivotal exercise for this horse, especially using that as a transition um, was very beneficial for this horse. Another thing that was really helpful in getting this horse turned around and really on the right track is that, like I said, he had quite a bit of riding before these problems became really apparent. And so he had some exercises and whatnot. But I started riding him twice a day as well because he was just kind of in a spot at his training where he thought this was what life was. He just kind of wanted to plateau and be a screwball about some of these things. So by turning up that heat a little bit and just getting him to kind of come out with his hands up a little bit and not in an aggressive way, but just get him in a more working frame of mind, riding him twice a day helped him get over that training hump that we were in. Yeah. Cause that, that two or sometimes three a day rides can really help break a mental habit of, especially in this horse's case, coming out every day and kind of starting the ride with an attitude of being a goofball, sauntering around, being hot, nervous. Um, This horse would kind of orbit back and forth between being kind of sold up and a little bit resentful about being handled. But then other times he would be kind of rambly and nervous and anxious about what you were doing. And he would, he was very inconsistent in his disposition and he would often start the rides nervous and kind of worked up, you know, and, and so you up that consistency. Yeah, it, it, it's a great way to kind of solidify in the horse's mind, like, this is what we're doing. There's, there's really no room in here for goofing around. Like I'm going to, I'm going to turn up the amount of consistency as much as I need to until we find a groove and you can settle in and relax. I'm not just going to let you bounce off the walls constantly for 15, 20 minutes before you finally settle down and I can actually ride. Yep. And for for a couple days of doing two-a-day sessions, that's what that first ride was. Like it was almost just putting out fires, um, you know, getting him corralled and not pinballing around like a weirdo. And then that second ride, was where, you know, a lot of that progress started developing. So then after that, uh, after a couple days of two-a-day rides, he started to come out a lot better, a lot more mentally quiet and ready to go to work. And that was one horse that helped me as a trainer kind of develop my mindset into what I would call multidimensional. You know, one dimensional being the body, the other dimension being the mental softness and having those two components working together ultimately a reality that a lot of us don't really think about sometimes is that we want a horse to submit and accept what's going on, not just do the task that we lay out in front of them. And thinking about that more adds another dimension, as you said, to your training. It's something that you, this is, I guess, 
the final, final thing I'll say on this note is a lot of people get preoccupied with that before they actually have learned any kind of a program. That That's the problem too, is on one end of the scale, you've got people that have a lot of tools. They, they It's like they've got a new shop with all these glistening new brand new tools that they can use, all these exercises that they know, they have a program, da-da-da-da-da, right? But they don't have any mental element going on. And then you have kind of on the other side, like the spiritual hippie crowd that's all about the mind. It's all about, you know, making the horse, the horse's existence as, as balanced and, and zen as possible, right? But they don't have a lot of tools in their toolbox. They have a, like one wrench and that's it. They don't really have a lot of tactical knowledge. You have to combine the two. You have to find a balance between, between the mental game, but don't let that, dissuade you from being an effective trainer when you have to be as well and putting some pressure on that horse. And I guess that's the final point you brought up to me was one of the other lessons in this horse was the importance of exposing a horse to that pressure, even if it's kind of exposing bad elements in how they're riding and handling. It kind of comes down to realizing and not being afraid to expose additional resistance. You know, it's easy to kind of have in your head, well, I've been riding my horse for this long, so resistance should only ever be past, you know, this point or this many decibels. Well, that's not a hard and fast rule. And if the resistance is there, you know, deal with it and not being afraid to expose that. Even if it looks ugly, even if, you know, you're afraid of what, you know, Joe Blow over the fence, who might be watching you out of the corner of his eye, is thinking. Not being afraid to expose this horse to more pressure, to get him over this training hump, to then continue making progress there. Exactly. We hear that phrase so often is, we should be beyond this. My horse shouldn't be doing this. I mean, we've We've been to X, Y, and Z clinics. I've done X, Y, and Z exercises for so long. We should not be facing this. My counter to that is, well, it's there nevertheless. At some point, we're going to have to face this beast head on. It's going to rear its ugly head. And it's never just going to go away. You know, we can't close the closet door and hope that the monster never comes out. It's going to keep living in there. What's uncomfortable about that is now that you're exposing that resistance for the next several days or maybe week or two, the horse is riding awful. At least in your mind, they're riding much poorly because previously you were able to kind of cover up that issue, manufacture things, make it look nice going around. Well, now, now the horse looks terrible because you're actually going back and working on what you need to be and the horse looks much less broke. Um, but the reality is you've got to work through that. Well, Amy, I think we've done a good job today giving the listeners an introduction to who you are, a little bit of your backstory, and a few of the key lessons that you've learned in your evolution as a horseman from the importance of having a consistent foundation and a program to follow when you first learn to having the wherewithal and the ability as a thinking horseman to modify and adapt what you're doing to suit a particular horse to placing equal emphasis on mental softness as well as physical softness in a horse. Obviously, throughout the course of your journey as a horseman, you've transformed into a capable professional who's equally as keen with working horses as well as with people who are learning horsemanship, and you're continuing to take in horses for training and do lessons, and you'll become a regular fixture on the podcast as well. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do this giving people a little bit of an introduction to who you are, and I'm glad to have you on our team. 
Yeah, for sure. And every step that I've made in this horsemanship career has opened up new doors and new opportunities, and the same goes for this one. And I'm really excited and looking forward to taking and training horses and doing some clinics and lessons with you guys. Now that Amy's going to be working with us to take in horses for training, doing lessons, clinics across the country, as well as, you know, she really specializes in youth lessons here locally in Northeast Nebraska. And so if you live in in Northeast Nebraska or Western Iowa, um, Amy is a great resource. You're not going to find very many horsemen or horsewomen in this region that are as qualified as her, that are equally as capable working with experienced horse owners and showmen, and then can turn right around and give a youth lesson with the same amount of passion and enthusiasm and pride that she takes in her work. And she certainly does a great job. Amy's details are going to be on our website at lundahlperformance.com, or you can find her on Facebook, get her contact info. And if you're interested in learning more about her or possibly setting up a lesson or inquiring about sending a horse for training, you can find her details, send her a message, or give her a phone call. Before we go, I'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Drinking Post Waterers. They make it possible for us to produce regular episodes on a timely basis with topics that you guys really care about. And if you get a chance, please check them out at www.drinkingpost.com slash project horse. They're actually doing a promotion right now where you can register to win a frost-free automatic waterer. While you're on the site, you can browse their line of products and learn how they can help you deliver fresh, clean drinking water to your animals year-round, whether you live in a hot or a cold climate. And right now, you can even register to win a free waterer. Once again, go to www.drinkingpost.com slash project horse to sign up and see how Drinking Post can help you. We'd really appreciate you checking out our sponsors as they help support this podcast. And as always, I want to extend my appreciation to our faithful listeners who give us their support, ask us questions, and provide feedback on a weekly basis. I know I speak for myself, Luke, Juliana, and Amy when I say thank you from all of us on the Lundahl Performance team for listening. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you for listening to the Project Horse Podcast. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and give us a five-star rating to help more horsemen like you find our content. You can also check out the Lundahl Performance Facebook page. There you can message us with any questions or training topics you want covered on the show. You can also learn about our training program, clinics, lessons, and the consulting we do for horse owners across the United States and abroad. Thanks again for listening. 